The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome back Dr. Seth Holmes. He is a cultural and medical anthropologist and physician whose work focuses broadly on social hierarchies, health disparities, and the ways in which perceptions of social difference naturalize and normalize these inequalities. He is based at the University of California, Berkeley, in the School of Public Health. He is also the author and the subject of our continued conversation of an excellent book called Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. There's a small line after the title that says, Important and Captivating, a Gripping Read. And I could not describe this book in a better way myself. I pick it up, I put it down, I get depressed, I feel hope, I look for it to help me empathize with the world a little bit more. At any rate, welcome back, Dr. Holmes. Thank you for having me. I so enjoyed our first interview, and I realized that 30 minutes wasn't nearly enough to cover this topic. And I realized that during our first half hour together, We covered certain situations. We covered your migrating across the U.S.-Mexican border. We talked a little bit about our trade policies that set migrant workers up for a life that is really slave-like. But I never asked you why you wrote this book. Good question. There's several reasons that I wanted to write the book. I wanted to both understand and raise awareness related to where our food comes from, it's hard for us to find out in the United States. We buy food in the grocery store, and oftentimes it's labeled based on where the the company of the label is based. So if you buy strawberries from a certain grocery store, it'll tell you that it's from a certain town, but that actually means that's where the headquarters of that label is -hmm. based as opposed to where the strawberries were actually grown. A lot of farms sell their produce to a certain label, and then it all looks the same after that. So I wanted to learn more about what's behind our foods, what work goes into it, how does it relate to the kind of painful irony that a lot of people are caught in, where our economy and our farms say, please come here, we need your work, we need your work. But our laws and our policies and a lot of our anti-immigrant sentiments and racism say, stay out, we don't want you, you're not allowed here. So those were the main reasons to understand our food system and how it embroils all of us into this phenomenon and how especially it, it relates to undocumented immigrants from south of the U.S. border who do a lot of the work on our farms and to raise awareness related to that. You know, that's exactly why I do Food Sleuth Radio. It's to help us understand and appreciate where our food comes from and to have greater respect for those hands that provide it to us. Well, we need to pick up where we left off. And my big long list of questions that we really didn't get to, including 
some of the stories of the farm workers that you worked right alongside in the fields. So I just want to throw out a little statistic that you have from Chapter 2, where you talk about the importance of migrant farm workers, right? These are the people that we so depend on, and yet we somehow, it seems like our policies don't like them very much, and the sentiment is that we don't like them. So you write that approximately 95% of agricultural workers in the U.S. were born in Mexico, and 52% of them, or more than half, are unauthorized. And so we've got a large population of individuals who are maybe afraid to be seen, afraid to speak out for some of the injustices that they experience in the fields. And you worked right alongside them, and you tell that story in this book. So let's go from there, and let's just start a little bit with you've crossed the border now, and that was in part one of of our interview. You've crossed the border. You're working on farms. Tell me a little bit about the farm hierarchy. I had no idea that that existed. Well, when I started living on the farm up in Washington State and doing research on farms here in California, I assumed that all of the people working on the farm, most of the people working on the farm, were Mexicans, period. It took me months of living and working to start understanding that many of them are U.S. citizen Mexican-Americans. Many of them are... Mestizo Mexicans from northern Mexico whose first language is Spanish. Many of them are indigenous native Mexicans from southern Mexico who speak different languages from Mistec to Triqui to some of the languages in Chiapas. And some of them are from Central America who have come through Mexico. And all of these workers are treated differently by different people on the farm. Many people on the farm assume, like I did in the beginning, that everyone is kind of the same, that they're all Mexican. But depending on your position in U.S. agriculture and how close you are to the workers themselves, you may understand and see that difference more completely. So a lot of what I saw was that based on ethnicity, these different ethnic groups, based on citizenship and immigration status, based on gender, people have different kinds of jobs. So the people who work bent over picking strawberries or blueberries or raspberries, most of them are indigenous native Mexicans whose first language is not Spanish. Spanish is their second language. The few people from that group who have become supervisors or have made it to be tractor drivers or another job that's less physically strenuous, all of those are the men from that ethnic group. The women tend not to be promoted to other positions as easily or as often. And the people who work on the raspberry picking machines where they're paid per hour as opposed to per pound, so there's less stress about am I going to make the minimum weight to keep my job today, those people were almost entirely Mexican-Americans who came to the farms from Texas each summer to work. Mm-hmm. And then the people who picked blueberries or who were supervisors and managers, many of them were Mexicans who were undocumented, but they were from northern Mexico. The first language was Spanish. They were not native indigenous Mexicans. 
there's a place in the book where I kind of drew out a chart about which ethnic groups had which jobs, which citizenship status groups had diff- which jobs, what kinds of body positions people had in the different jobs, partially for me to be able to map it out and understand it better and partially to help the narrative story that I was writing about the individual people who I got to know from Samuel, who I visited recently in the Central Valley of California, to the woman who's on the front cover of the book. I wanted the readers to be able to also see this chart to kind of be able to put it all together, you know, be able to see the forest and the trees to some degree at the same time. It is very helpful. It happens to be on page 85. It's under the chapter 3, Segregation on the Farm. And what I find so interesting about this is so you've got it set up where you look at the type of work, the citizenship, the language spoken, the ethnicity, and then you've got the hierarchy bar where you get going from the most respect, health, financial security, and control over time and others' labor down to the least control. And I am going to assume, based on this chart and based on what I read in your book, that it's the tricky Mexicans that are the lowest on the totem, you might say. They're the indigenous tribe. They are largely undocumented, and they are the ones that have the hardest, most physically grueling work. The kneeling work, is, and you describe an individual who has horrific knee pain, for example, and that was Abelino, I believe. And you go through several tricky migrants and their conditions from knee pain, headache, and GI or stomach upset. And you talk about their illness narratives, which I thought was an interesting way to describe it, and how and why they have these conditions and how the traditional medical system views the person and the condition versus maybe a more holistic approach. So that's kind of what I want to focus our short 30 minutes on together, is the lower people on this totem pole having the worst conditions and the least able really to speak about them, ask for help, get help, and even move to a different position of lighter work on the farm. Right. You're right about that. The the indigenous people, the tricky people, tended to have the least choice in what kind of work they were going to do, and their work tended to be the most difficult on their body, the most repetitive, the most bent over, and their living situation, the shacks that they lived in, in the labor camps, tended to be the least insulated, the coldest at night, the hottest during the day, and they didn't partially, you know, for many different reasons, for social network reasons, who they knew and didn't know, their accent, the languages that they spoke clearly and and not as clearly. They didn't have as much ability to move outside of the bent-over strawberry-picking jobs to other jobs. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the people who were able to move outside of that group to either drive tractors or spray pesticides or something else that's considered a slightly better job, those tended to be the tricky men, and the tricky women had even less possibility for occupational mobility. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a wonderful chapter, Chapter 4, on how the poor suffer. 
And you explain the suffering. I mean, the physical pain must be excruciating. And you talk about, you know, you're working alongside these workers and you get to go home and sit in the hot tub to ease your aches and pains. And anybody that's ever done any garden work knows that your body can hurt after a day of that. And yet these people are really subject to these repetitive injuries day after day with no recourse. So I want you to pick out somebody whose medical story and history you want to tell, just to give people an idea of of what it's like. Well, in some ways, Abelino makes the most sense because his injuries are the most common. So Abelino, I often followed or went with him and his wife and his daughter to pick in the fields, and we would start early in the morning, 4.35, 5.30 in the morning, and then work until the end of the day. I was always slower than them. I would start with them and then kind of be left behind. And one day when he was pivoting, because you're in the, you know, the dirt road between two rows of berries picking on both sides of you. So one day when he pivoted from one of the rows of berries to the other row on the other side of him, his knee all of a sudden had excruciating pain. And he described it as directly behind his kneecap. So we went to the field supervisor, the crop supervisor, to let him know that this had happened. And he said, okay, and got in his pickup truck and drove away and didn't follow up on it. So Abelino kept trying to pick strawberries but and tried to pick in different positions that wouldn't put so much pressure on his knees. But when he is, was in better positions, he picked slower, and then he was worried about missing the minimum weight. So he picked in excruciating pain and almost missed the minimum weight that day. The next day, there was a heavy rainstorm and picking was canceled at the last minute. So we went to an urgent care clinic together. The urgent care physician examined his knee, took x-rays, told him it wasn't broken, but that it was probably due to repetitive bending over and over and over, and then pivoting motion kind of triggered what was already, in a sense, ripe to be harvested, this inflammation from repetitive stress. And the physician told him that he should go to the farm and ask for lighter work where he's not bent over. So we went to the front desk and he asked the bilingual receptionist about lighter work. And she said in Spanish, no porque no, which just means no because no. And she didn't offer to let him talk with anyone else. So he ended up seeing a different physician who suggested that he... um, So the first physician actually had said that he should rest and let his knee recover completely. The second physician he saw, because urgent clinic physicians switch, you know, they're not... They don't have regular schedules necessarily. So he saw a different physician the next time we went back. And that physician said he should ask for lighter work and that it would be fine if he worked on the farm as long as he didn't bend, walk, or stand for long periods of time. Which would be impossible as a farm worker. Right, exactly. But bilingual receptionists didn't try to find a different kind of position that he, you know, a different job, a different occupation for him. Raspberry picking machine or something where you'd be sitting down or standing up but not bent over all day. Dr. Holmes, let me just take one break because we're midway through a little bit more than that and just remind our listeners that 
We are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are having a conversation with Dr. Seth Holmes, who is the author of Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. And I should mention that Dr. Holmes has worked with migrant farm workers in the field. He's crossed the border illegally with them from southern Mexico. And the stories told in this book are so, um, it's a hard book to put down. Let's just say that. Okay, now, I have a couple of questions first about Abelino's um, situation. And the first is, why do you think the receptionist was less than kind in her reaction to him seeking some kind of lighter work? That's a great question. There are a lot of ways that different categories of people, different groups of people come to be written off or seen as less than or understood Mm -hmm. to be deserving of their lots in life. And in a lot of interviews with this bilingual receptionist, there were things that she saw the native indigenous Mexicans as less than the other Mexicans and less than the U.S. citizens. And she and other people often described them as both tough and hard workers, but also sort of childish. And in cultural anthropology, we talk about a classic hierarchy that we call social Darwinism, where people assume that there's this hierarchy from the modern civilized person, and that's usually, the, for example, the white U.S. citizen, down to the kind of savage, backward, uncivilized person. And those people are usually imagined to be Native people who don't speak a Romance language. They have a different language. Mm -hmm. And this hierarchy is a product of years and decades and millennia of different forms of racism and prejudice and power struggles and histories and wars and colonialism and all of that put together. There were many times in my research that I saw that kind of hierarchy, that kind of social Darwinism subtly working its way into interactions and promotions and decisions about who would be believed when someone said that their amount on their paycheck was off or whether someone's request for lighter work would be taken really seriously or just kind of written off. So that's a big part of what's going on in the ethnic interactions in U.S. agriculture relates to this kind of social Darwinism presumptions about who's modern, who's civilized, and who isn't. Mm. So tell me, are you keeping track with Abelino, and what happened to him? He went to a clinic after that, Mm -hmm. and we should talk a little bit about, I think, how it seemed that historically medicine was practiced differently than it is today, where today we seem to compartmentalize body parts, whereas, and probably more like the kind of care that indigenous tribes still receive from their care providers, is a more holistic approach. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what happened next. He was denied light work, then what, and then if you're still in touch with him. Mm -hmm. He was denied light work. His care was passed from the urgent care clinic to a rehabilitation medicine physician, often called a physiatrist. Mm -hmm. And the rehabilitation medicine physician saw him without a Spanish translator 
and told him that the reason his knee hurt is that he had been bending over incorrectly and that he didn't know how to bend over correctly. But I noticed in her, you know, very busy clinic and her schedule of seeing, you know, a lot of patients back to back, she hadn't actually asked him how he bent over. She didn't have him demonstrate. So there's another level of kind of assumption about different categories of people going on also in the clinic, Mm -hmm. where a certain kind of writing off and a certain kind of blaming the patient in a subtle way, not intentionally, but blaming the patient for their injury happens. Right. He twisted. The injury was essentially blamed on him instead of blamed on U.S.-Mexico policies like the North American Free Trade Agreement that forced people like Abelino to leave their home farms to work on our farms in repetitive strain situations and the kinds of racism and classism and anti-immigrant prejudice that happen in the U.S. that keep him from having very many other options besides being bent over picking strawberries. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what happened. He had applied for workers' compensation since the injury happened on the farm in order to pay for his medical care. In the end, at some point, his workers' compensation application was denied simply because he left the state of Washington to go to California with all of his extended family at the end of the season. And workers' compensation is state by state. So it doesn't take into account this mobile migration life that a lot of farm workers have. I've kept in touch with him over the years. And the last time I saw him, he had moved outside of Portland, Oregon, and was working for a company where he could be seated most of the day making wreaths out of the boughs of pine trees, evergreen trees. So he does have a form of lighter work now. One downside, in a sense, is that he had to leave the migration circuit with all of his extended family and try to find something else that doesn't pay as well but also doesn't hurt his knee. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he's been doing. So I want to ask you, how has your experience working with migrant workers affected the way you practice medicine today? Hmm. One thing that's hard about practicing medicine, and I'm sure you know this as a clinician yourself, but there are a lot of constraints on time and on kind of on the structure of the clinic itself. So there are many times when I've met with a patient You know, I've done HIV primary care at a homeless clinic here in San Francisco, and I did bilingual care at another homeless clinic in Spanish and English. And in each clinic, I had 10 to 15-minute appointments with my patients, and I wanted to be able to understand more their social situations, where they were sleeping, how I could help them or the social worker find something better for them and understand their asthma or their diabetes or whatever medical condition they were coming in for. But it often was really difficult in that period of time. And in one of those clinics in particular, most days we didn't have any nurses and we just had one medical assistant. So there was very little support staff to be able to help with any of the diet education for people with diabetes or giving the vaccines or finding the vaccines for someone who needed them, all of that I needed to do in the 10 to 15 minutes that I had allotted. So one thing I've done 
since this research that led to the book is have joined forces with some other physician, anthropologist, physician, sociologist, MD, PhDs who are pushing for what we're calling structural competence. So in medical education, nursing education, social work, etc., people are trained in cultural competence, how not to be ethnocentric and assume that everyone else is like you, how to be more humble in relationship to people from other ethnicities, other cultural backgrounds, to ask them questions about their backgrounds. But what we're pushing for is structural competence. Not only do we need to start showing awareness of cultural differences, but also of the social structures, political structures, economic structures, labor structures, immigration structures that impinge on a person's health and their ability to make healthy choices or deal with their illnesses or sicknesses in a way that will lead to health in the future. And that structural competence, I'm hoping, will not only lead to changes in individual clinical encounters, but also will change somewhat the way that clinical medicine is practiced so that physicians and nurses and social workers and patients have a little more room and time to work together on not just the medical issues, but also the living situation, the labor situation that impinge on their possibility of leading full, healthy lives. Mm -hmm. I think what's so magical about this book is that we get to look through your narratives of, uh, we, we get to see two broken systems, at least. We get to see the broken food system, and then we get to see the medical system that, as you so well described, there's, there are problems with just practicing the medicine, and then there are problems with the, the constraints, and then all of the social and economic and environmental issues that lead the person to be ill in the first place. Well, you know, our time is up, and uh, I knew it would fly, but if, I just want to let everyone know that if you have to pick one book to read this summer, or, or at any time, if you've got a book club and you want to read something that has incredible substance and compassion and you want to build a little empathy in your community, then I highly recommend Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States by Seth Holmes. And just to let our listeners know, the conclusion of your book talks about change, pragmatic solidarity, and beyond. And We'll just have to leave it to our listeners to pick up the book and find ways out of this mess. But any final charge as we close? Thank you very much, Melinda. I'm amazed at how quickly it went. I think what I hope the book does is push for a human empathy that goes beyond our individual social categories of ethnicity, of immigration, of gender, and pushes for more solidarity among different groups, from the people who eat the food to the chefs who cook fancy food to the farm workers who pick it to the people who work behind the kitchen door in the restaurants, and that on some level, some of that will do larger policy work through vote changes and politician changes perhaps renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement or creating truly comprehensive immigration reform that's fair. And I hope that the readers will 
become more aware of where their food comes from and interact with people who are providing them that food in a empathetic, respectful way that includes different kinds of solidarity, pragmatic and sometimes not pragmatic solidarity. Thank you, Dr. Holmes, for being my guest. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you very much.